watch the kids up here, and I have my eye on some prospective praise team members. So, uh, but that probably means that we need to start working in some choreography as well. So, uh, you know, that's a challenge, especially if you went to Harding. You know what I'm talking about. So, uh, today we're going to begin a new series of uh, messages, and uh, actually, it's probably from one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. And you may not even realize that, uh, how famous 1 Corinthians 13. Well, how famous is it? This is how famous 1 Corinthians 13 is. I mean, it's right up there with the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23, so that I can say 1 Corinthians 13 talks about and most of us would say love. Do you realize how famous that is? It's not like I can just stand up here and start quoting Bible chapters, Bible books, and the majority of us will go, oh, well, yeah, well, that's a chapter about, and oh, well, yeah, that's a chapter about. See, it just doesn't happen, but 1 Corinthians 13 is, is so famous. And... Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this famous chapter in the Bible um, in two or three lessons. I don't have the time that I would like to have because there's so much that I want to say and there's so much that I need to say about uh, 1 Corinthians 13. When you look at any book in the Bible, when you look at any chapter, anytime you open your Bible and you look at any book, you look at any chapter, you look at any verse, it's important for you to first see how that teaching relates to the setting of the day. In fact, as, as Bible readers today, some of the first questions that we need to ask ourselves is, how would the original hearers have heard this? And then specifically, what is going on in the culture the day of that day that, that the Bible writer felt like they needed to sit down and write a letter to them? And so we have to take these two things into consideration. Scholars tell us that Paul's letters to the Corinthians, more so than any other document in the New Testament, that you have to look at what was happening in the world in that day to understand why Paul is writing to the church in the world of that day, unlike any other document in the New Testament. So here's what I want to do in our time together today. I want to talk a little bit about the city of Corinth, and I want us to see the gospel message that is given to a city such as Corinth. And then the second thing I want to do is I just want to talk about the church in Corinth and the gospel message that's given to the church in Corinth as well. So I want to look at the city, and I want to look at the church, but more importantly, I want to see how the gospel speaks into the realities of the city and of this church. And so we'll do that uh, this way today to introduce this series together. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word right now, would you open our ears to hear your truth? Would you open our hearts to receive your truth? Would you open, would you open up our lives to see your love, to see you? We pray through the Holy Spirit, our teacher, and through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the city of Corinth. You, you can open up any kind of commentary, and they're all pretty much going to tell you the same thing. 
Corinth was a wild city. I mean, it was a hustling, bustling, rooting, tooting, booming kind of city. It was unlike any other city. I mean, most of the time we think that, you know, that we have cities today that uh, put the E in evil, you know, that, that we have cities today that uh, are, are, are just these horrible, awful, avoid-at-all-cost cities, but boy, Corinth was something else. I have a map. Is, is the map there? Yeah, see the map, and so I'm gonna, we're going to do a couple of zoom-ins on the map. So you can see, first of all, now, now Corinth is, is right there on the bottom where it says Kalamata, which now I'm thinking about olives for some reason. Uh, I couldn't find a really good, you know, Bible map, so I had to use uh, the modern. So this is modern Corinth, but, but I mean, the geography is the same. So you see where the olives are, and you see where Athens are. Now go to the next slide, and you'll see that this is the, the narrowed-in version. And so Corinth is this, uh, has this geographical uh, unique factor that it's a narrow strip of land bordered by seas on each side. And for those of you who are Jeopardy fans, what is isthmus? It's an isthmus. And, and they actually had, you can, I think there's one more slide right there by the Splash Water Park. You see, it even says Isthmus. It was really popular. Paul and, and Aquila and Priscilla used to go to the water park all the time. It was one of their favorite places to, to hang out. They would take the kids from Kids Church in Corinth, and they'd go to the Splash Park Water Park. It was, it was a lot of fun. But you see there's this little narrow strip there. It was a canal. Think of the Panama Canal of when that was built. And the reason the Panama Canal was built, because it created a safe passage for shipment. In this day, now, you know, we're talking A.D., right? In this day, this canal provided a safe passage so that you didn't have to go all the way around the, you know, the whole part of that island, the, the isthmus. You didn't have to go around the whole body of water. It was a safe passage to go through that. So what this means is that the city of Corinth was a seaport. And, and that in itself says a lot about the city of Corinth. It was a strategic location for commerce, and so it was the place that people went to make money. And because money attracts people like rancid meat attracts flies, people flocked, men and women, to the city of Corinth like a flock of seagulls. The town was filled with people. And, you know, as a a wealthy seaport where money flowed, it meant that men and women were readily available because we all know that where there are sailors, right, there are parrots. So uh, Corinth was a, a wealthy city, it was a seaport, it was a cosmopolitan city. People from all over the, the world in that area would come to this place because it was known for a few things. That was the place to make money. And so as a cosmopolitan city, it attracted a wide range of cultures. It had a lot of diversity of people, of arts, of, of commerce. They had artisans. It had a wide range of, of philosophy and a wide range of religion as well. At the time, it was the host of what was known as the Isthmian Games, they were these uh, Pan-Hellen Games, and it was, you know, a precursor to, you know, kind of our modern Olympics. And so Corinth was the place that you would go to if you wanted to pursue your athletic career. So if you had an aspiring, you know, desire to be a professional athlete, that's where you would go, to the city of Corinth. As the home of the Temple of Aphrodite... 
who was the goddess of beauty, fertility, and sex, Corinth was also the place that you would go if you wanted to indulge your sexual appetite. So Cher's song, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, was actually the Billboard number one song for about a hundred years in Corinth. Yeah, she's that old. All this to say that the church lady would not have approved of the city of Corinth. I mean, the people who called Corinth home, they were known to be fiercely independent in spirit. Corinth was such a free-for-all, I-do-what-I-want kind of place. Even their Chick-fil-A was open on Sunday. (laughs) There was a term that was coined during this time, during this time. And the word was to Corinthianize, to Corinthianize. And what it meant was a person who was promiscuous, a person who was giving themselves to live an immoral life. In his commentary on Corinthians, Gordon Fee says, Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of its day. That in that time, it was our, those three modern cities today all rolled up in one. All right, so how does the gospel speak into such a place as Corinth? How does the gospel, and what does the gospel say to, to such a place that is so devoted to self, that is so devoted to personal pleasure, that is so devoted to, to any and everything under the sun except God? What does the gospel say to this kind of place? You see, conventional wisdom would tell us, but this is probably a bad place for a church, right? Probably a bad place for a church. But divine wisdom tells us this is the exact place that needs a church. This is the exact kind of place that needs light, that needs salt, that needs gospel-shaped people. So, while on tour... Uh, his missionary tour, the Apostle Paul, he, he ends up in Corinth. And if you want to read about this later, Acts chapter 18 tells us about Paul's time in Corinth. And the first people that he meets in the city of Corinth are a husband and wife team by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla have an unusual, well, they have an unusual bond with Paul. The Bible tells us that they're all tent makers by trade. Now, what's really interesting is the word tent maker actually means leather worker, Corinthian leather. Paul may have been one of the original artisans involved in Corinthian leather. Anybody remember that? Anybody have a car with Corinthian leather? When the commercial came out, did you want a car with Corinthian leather? By the way, it was just a marketing thing. The leather was actually made in New Jersey. (laughs) It's true. But back in the mid-70s, and this is the 1970s, Josh, back in the mid-70s, the Chrysler Corporation hired this marketing campaign, had this marketing campaign, and they got Ricardo Montalban, remember, to talk about Corinthian leather. And it was such a hit that people had to have a car with Corinthian leather. It's, It's like having James Earl Jones read from the National Enquirer right? His voice is so good, you just believe it. 
right? You just listen to him read and you believe everything is true. So Acts 18 tells us that Paul comes to Corinth, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, and they have this bond. We also know that Paul stays in the city of Corinth for 18 months. 18 months. That's a long time. Now, the first thing that Paul does when he gets to the city of Corinth is he goes to the synagogue because there is actually a synagogue in the city of Corinth. You see, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, had ordered that all of the Jews had to leave Rome, and so there was a significant population of Jews in Corinth, and and then they had a synagogue. So when Paul first arrives there, as he did in every place that he goes, he goes first into the synagogue, and he's trying to reason with them. He's trying to teach them, and Paul's message is this, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one that our entire hopes are pinned on. He is the one that God has sent to deliver us. And they did not receive that message very well. In fact, Acts 18 tells us that not only were they not receptive to this message, but they treated Paul in a, in a horrible way. They were angry at him. They were abusive towards him. And this is one of the biggest moments in the entire gospel story, that in this wicked city, in the New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas of its day, Paul says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. This is where Paul makes his heart is for his countrymen. He wants his fellow Jews to be saved, to come to the belief in Jesus as the Christ. And because of the way they treat him in Corinth, listen, it's the church people that treat him horribly. He makes the decision in Corinth from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Later that night, the Bible tells us that Paul has a vision. And in the vision, the Lord comes and speaks. And we're familiar with the first time that Paul has the vision when he's, he's commissioned. But in, this is a great one in Acts 18. It's about verse 9, verse 10 where the Lord actually comes to him and confirms this idea in Paul. Yes, be free. Go and preach the news of Jesus as Christ to those who are Gentiles. In fact, God tells him in this vision, don't be afraid. And I, and I love this moment. I love this moment in the book of Acts because there at about the end of verse 10, it says, I'm going to be with you and no one's going to harm you because I have many in this city who are my people. You see that? I mean, in the most, you know, woo, city of its, of its day, God is telling Paul, oh, there are plenty of people here that are my people. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul decides, he determines that he would be more effective among irreligious people than he would the religious people? that Paul sees that he will have a greater opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ among, essentially, pagans. And so this is a big moment in the history of the church. This is a big moment in the story of redemption, that Paul makes this decision in Corinth 
I'm going to the people of the city. Listen, you may come from the sticks, you may come from the suburbs, you may come from a skyscraping city of steel. It doesn't matter where you come from. There is no place under heaven where the gospel cannot reach the hearts of people who are seeking God. So we don't need to be afraid of our city. We don't need to shy away from the struggles and the difficulties in our city. We're in this city for that very purpose. We as salt, we as light, we as the very people of God are in this city to be light, not to shun the city, not to write off the city, not to just gather together in here and talk about how bad the city is. You see, some churches, all they do is challenge and criticize cities, culture. And some churches, all they do is love and accept and tolerate. And, and, and both are, are double sides. you got to have both of them. As gospel-shaped people, as a gospel-shaped church, we need with discernment to learn how to challenge our culture when appropriate and to love our culture when appropriate. You see, truth without love is just as useless as love without truth. You have to have both. And so the gospel teaches us to engage our cities, to engage in the lives of people in love. We accept and we affirm our culture where we can, and in love we challenge our culture when we need to. Okay, so the city of Corinth, man, it's a hot mess right? It just is. And you know what? So was the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is a hot mess. And you know why? It's because it perfectly mirrored the city where they were. The church in Corinth mirrored the city. And so the city's a hot mess and the church is a hot mess. I want to read to you now from 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But I want to show you just the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, this tells us two things. It tells us two things about the church in Corinth. First, it was a gifted church. I mean, you look at these first three verses and, and you see this? It's an incredibly gifted church. There were people who could speak in various languages. There were people who could speak in tongues. There were people who had gifts of prophecy. There were people who had gifts of leadership. By the way, most commentaries say that that phrase, faith to move mountains, is actually talking about a gift of leadership, people who can move people to action. So you had very gifted, very talented people here in this church. You even had people during this time, and, and, and there were, I mean, not the apostles themselves, but there were followers of Jesus who literally were burned at the stake because of Jesus Christ. 
And so what you have in this church in Corinth is a very gifted church. It's a, it's a charismatic and dynamic church. It's a very eloquent and educated church. It's a very sacrificial and generous church. It's such a gifted church. But there was something missing. There was something missing in this church. And so not only was it a very gifted church, but it's a very troubled church. It's a very troubled church. And and those two things are happening at the same time. The the church in Corinth was quite possibly the most troubled church in the first century. Can you see the council of churches handing out the yearly awards, right? And the most troubled church award goes to, for the tenth year in a row, the church in Corinth. I mean, it was probably one of the most troubled churches in all of the first century. I mean, you, you read through... 1 Corinthians, and you see chapter after chapter of issues that Paul is dealing with in the church, not in the community, in the church. He's talking about division. He's talking about lawsuits. He's talking about idolatry, and the lawsuits are, you know, one to another. He's talking about social injustice that's occurring in the church. He's talking about sexual immorality, uh, this whole misunderstood idea about marriage and divorce. He's talking about prejudice. He's even talking about racial injustice. I mean, Paul is writing these things to the church. The the troubles of the church in Corinth, they sound more like a soap opera than they do a church. I mean, it's like we have a script for a reality TV show that we're looking at. And and Paul is writing to this very gifted and this very troubled. Can you imagine following the church in Corinth on social media? Oh, whoa. Right? I mean, this is a very, very troubled church. So what word does the gospel speak to a troubled church? Probably the best word. Yeah, the the church in Corinth was a hot mess. Listen, when a church is involved in the day-to-day lives of people in their city, the church is going to be a mess. It's going to be. You know what should bother us if our church isn't messy? That's what should bother us. You know what should trouble us? What should trouble us is if our church isn't messy. Because the church that is involved in the day-to-day life of people, people are messy. That church is going to be messy. Churches are messy because people are messy. Churches are imperfect because people are imperfect. And you know what? It's okay to be messy. Now, your mom may have a different view on that. So as far as your room is concerned, keep it clean. But it's okay to be messy. When did we think it was wrong to embrace the mess of people's lives? When did we cultivate this idea that we had to hide it, we had to sweep it under the rug, we had to pretend like it wasn't there? When did we decide that church was about being so fake that we just really didn't know anybody? When did we sacrifice being genuine? Churches are messy. And we of all people should embrace the mess. Listen, it's hard to be confronted with the truth of the gospel. It really is. I mean, it's hard for someone to hear 
that, you know what, my life is a mess. It's hard to hear that. It's hard to understand that I am more sinful and I am more depraved than I would ever care to believe. That's a hard truth of the gospel. But it's only understanding this hard truth of the gospel which makes the good news beautiful. That at the very same time in Christ Jesus, I am more loved and I am more accepted than I ever dared imagine. This is good news for us. Chapter 13 is a shocking message to a hard-to-shock church. What happened in Corinth had not stayed in Corinth. So what do you tell a gifted and troubled church? What do you tell people who have already supposedly responded to the good news, who have already supposedly given themselves to Jesus Christ, but you look at the church and you say, wow, they've got a lot of problems. What do you tell them? You know, the first thing that Paul does reminds them of three quick things. The first thing he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is he reminds them, I love the way, I mean, everything that I've just told you about the city and about the church, look at Paul's first words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. I mean, this is worth even for you to take a look at in your own Bible. To the church of God in Corinth. Huh. The very first thing Paul says is, let me tell you, let me remind you who you belong to, to the church in God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So that's the first thing he does. He reminds them of their calling of who they belong to. Now, the second thing is he reminds them, and this is 1 Corinthians in verse, chapter 1, verse 4, that he reminds them of their gifting. He says, you've been given so many gifts as a people. You've been given so many gifts as a church, and it reminds them that this gifting comes from God. And then he reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he reminds them of a redemption. And in 1 Corinthians 6, which is one of the most difficult passages for many people in our church culture and many people in our modern culture to understand, because Paul is saying some hard truth. He's speaking some hard truth about realities, and he's talking about these decisions that you've created for yourself another identity, another God, and that's who you're seeking, and that's who you're following. And in the middle of all this, of these very hard words, he says something that is so important for us to understand. This is one of Paul's greatest gospel phrases, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and look at verse 10, at verse 11. And such were some of you. You see what he's saying? You used to be like this, but in Christ Jesus you're not. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He goes on further in verses 19 and 20 and says this, You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. So Paul reminds them of three things, of their calling, of who they belong to, of their gifting that it's from grace, of redemption that it's from grace, that who they are now in Christ is not who they were. So they had to live differently. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13 then. It's a message to a gifted and troubled church. So who's this really a message for? 
Well, first and foremost, it's a message to us, okay? Because we can have the best worship, we can have the best programs, we can have the best ministries, we can have the best outreach, but if we're just doing it to prop ourselves up, it's worthless. Absolutely worthless. If we're not engaging in these things because of the great love that God has poured over us and the great love we have for people, if we are not doing these things out of a spirit of love, it's just it's worthless. You see, the struggle of the church in Corinth from verses 1 through 3 is that it had a fantastic external show. They had a fantastic external look to themselves but it was their motivation of why they were doing this. They didn't have love, and so it rendered it worthless. I think that this shows us why we need the redemption found only in the gospel. We need this love motivation behind everything that we do. Secondly, it's a message to gifted people. It really is. That God gives gifts to all people, and they're for the common good. That's why God gives gifts. I mean, isn't it great that God doesn't just make Christians gifted people? He gives gifts across the board to all people because it makes this world a better place to live in. And God gives gifts to all people for it's for the common good. And the point of these gifts is to serve the common good. Listen, man, I struggle with self-righteousness. I really do. Uh, this has been a struggle my entire life. And, and I'm just starting to see that it's related to my gifting. Because I have so many gifts and I recognize them. I, I, I Listen, I, was, I woke up and I had these gifts. I mean, I worked here and there on some of them. But I know I look back on my life and I have always been a very gifted person. I always knew that I, that I would work in church because God had given me these gifts to do that. And so that's the great side. That's the, wait, which one is the good one, Jekyll and Hyde? I never can figure out which one, the, the, the two sides of Cruella, right? So I, 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 I acknowledge, and can you hear me, please? I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying I realize I realize I have all of these gifts, but the problem has been in my life is that I start to let them influence how I feel about myself and other people. And so my self-righteousness kicks in. My self-righteousness kicks in, and I realize, man, I am totally obliterating the gospel of grace. And so I need the deep work that the gospel of grace does. I need this shaping in my life on a daily basis, I need it to kill pride. I need it to kill arrogance. I need it to kill the external performance because I need the gospel to root within me the only thing that matters, and that's love. Because without that, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I really tried to get a gong today. But I figured, you know, during the singing, someone might have been tempted to come up there and hit it. You know, so best, best not to do that. So, man, this is a message to gifted people. It's a message to troubled people as well. The gospel is trying to break in and speak a word of truth to either of these realities. To the gifts that you have from God and even to the mess that's in your life right now. You know what? 
If I were to ask you, where would you place your life right now on the messy scale? Scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the lowest, 10 being the messiest. You know what? You could put 20 on the scale right now, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the gospel is teaching us to embrace this mess. The gospel is teaching us that it is in this mess of our lives where God is going to do His best work for you. And so the cross speaks into our mess in one of the most powerful ways. Oh, oh, listen, don't you see? The cross is where pardon meets promise. The cross is where mercy meets our mess. The cross is where love meets loss. The cross is where redemption meets regret. The cross of Jesus was enough for Paul who considered himself the worst of sinners. And the cross of Jesus was enough for the church in Corinth, who by all all takes was the worst of churches. So don't you see, if the cross is enough for Paul and the cross is enough for the church in Corinth, isn't the cross enough for us? Isn't it enough for us? Can't we take our identity? Can't we take our hope? Can't we take our joy? Can't we take our meaning? Can't we take everything that we do as a church and everything we want to be as a people? Can't we take that from what we learn at the cross? Without love, we are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. But because He loved, Jesus was silent before His accusers. Without love, we're filled with pride and we're filled with jealousy. Because of love, Jesus emptied himself and became nothing. Without love, we're overcome with bitterness and sorrow and remorse. Because he loved, Jesus drank the cup of bitterness. Let's pray. God, our city can be messy Our church is often messy, and our lives are perpetually messy because we forget. We forget. Would you speak your truth to our heart? Would you you speak the truth of your holiness and your justice, the truth of your love and your grace? Would you pour it out over our mess? We... Today, we open up our lives to you to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our mess. We pray through Christ. Amen. We're going to stand together, and if you would like someone to pray with you, our elders are going to be in the breaks and up front as we share in this song together.